a Bible with you, we're going to turn to the very beginning of uh, Genesis chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, turn there or use the Bible from the bench in front of you. That'd be a great thing to use. And it's the very first book of the Bible and chapter 4. So look for the big number 4 on the page and you should be in the right area. This is week two out of a three-part series. Last week, we, our, our sermon was entitled Gratitude in an Age of Outrage. And uh, so last week, we talked about um, how gratitude is essential to guarding our minds and our hearts, and that uh, when we think about good things and when we add thanksgiving to our prayers about all sorts of things, that that becomes a protection against anxiety and negative thought patterns in our lives. So that was, that was what we talked about last week. Uh, today, um, I'm going to move on to number two, but maybe I should just interject really quickly. Did anybody notice, I don't know if anyone did, but did anyone notice that there was an election in the United States this, this week? Anyone? I mean, wasn't it amazing that you couldn't find any news coverage of it? I mean, maybe it's just because up in Saskatchewan, we're so busy enjoying the outdoors or collecting food for the food bank. Hey, 53,000 pounds. Was that pretty exciting? So, so maybe that's why we missed the election. Maybe that's why we didn't pay any attention. And, and I think that there was an election that happened, but I, I think we were too busy counting our blessings and being grateful to notice. Okay. You know, I kind of thought there'd be some angry people after the election was over. And uh, I'm not, you know, going to hide the fact that we timed the age of outrage for this season of the year. <laughs> we sort of saw what happened last year with the Canadian election, and we thought the American election might be similar. There might be some angry people after it's all said and done. Now, to be honest, I'm a little shocked by the outcome. I didn't expect the outcome that happened in the American election, but I'm not shocked that there's angry people, because I expected that either way. Whenever there's division, there's anger, and um, I knew that that was going to be a safe bet. <laughs> I knew that that was going to happen. So maybe there's some Americans that are angry at their fellow Americans, uh, and maybe there's even a few Canadians who have picked up on the vibe across the border, and maybe they're even angry at some of their fellow Canadians. That, that's a possibility. I was thinking today, it's sort of good that we had two elections back-to-back, -back, the Canadian one last year and then this one this year, because this gives us really good practice um, in praying for our leaders. Because I'm willing to bet there's very few people that are happy about both results of the two elections. I think that probably it's a very small slice of people who were Trudeau and Trump people. Do you think that that's right? If you're one of them, you're just sitting there beaming because the world is just going your way, right? But I don't think that too many people fit that category. I think that you probably experienced at least one election, if you were into politics at all, you probably experienced at least one election where you were disappointed with the results, and maybe even two. No matter where you are, no matter where you sit on the spectrum, you probably experienced some sort of disappointment or, or, or thoughts about this. And, and because we've been drawn into it, uh, by a lot of uh, the media, and um, it's easy to get uh, to pick up on other people's anger and, or have some anger of our own. But you know, one of the, I thought one of the best statements after the election was done, and again, I'm not getting political on you, but I do want to affirm one statement, and I thought it was really great. President Obama, at the, after the election was over, he had one line that I thought was a genius leadership line. This is it. The intramurals are over. The intramural, do you know what intramurals are? Do you go play school sports when you're a kid and they were in-house, in you know, so you played basketball or, or floor hockey or something in-house, made up teams within your school and you played them. Now, these were, this wasn't the, the most important, let's say it was basketball or volleyball or something. These weren't the most important versions of basketball and volleyball. The more important ones was when your school would play a different school. I mean, it was good to practice against each other, and it was lots of fun, and it allowed some le lesser athletes to really have a part to play because they may not make the better team. But 
if the intramurals went poorly, let's say it caused division and everybody didn't like each other afterwards and some people quit the school team or, or people on the school team would fight in the locker room, well, then the intramurals were, it was sad how they went. Well, I loved how President Obama said that. Intramurals are over. And what the new chapter is about learning to walk together, learning about being on the same team. And I thought it was a beautiful uh, analogy for um, what I think our nation needs, what I think North America, United States needs, is a way to walk together after some pretty sharp disagreements about a lot of different things. So I was actually in the shower this morning, I was thinking about the thought of intramurals, and I thought about the Moose Jaw Warriors and how they often have, at the beginning of the season, they'll have an a, um, inter-squad, intramural type game, the black team and the white team, or maybe there's a red team, I can't remember, but there's two colored teams, and I think assistant coaches coach them both, and then they go at it, and they sort of show them, the coaches what they've got, and it's, you know, it's sort of exciting. If you're a really diehard Warriors fan, you might go to a game like that. Has anyone ever been to an inter-squad game with the Warriors? Anyone? Okay, yeah, some of you guys, okay, a bunch of you guys are gone. Okay, so it's a really cool thing. You sort of see what talent is there and, and at the inter-squad game, but if I was the coach, I'm not the coach, but if I was the coach of the Moose Jaw Warriors, I would have three rules for an inter-squad game. This would be my three rules. Overlook the hook. Okay, so you're in a game, guy hooks you with his stick to slow you down. If it's an inter-squad game, don't get offended, don't get mad, don't get angry. It's just an inter-squad game, right? The ref doesn't call it. Don't get all up in arms about it. Just overlook it. In fact, that's good practical advice for life too. Sometimes people will hook you in life and you have a choice. You can just overlook it. It's usually small enough that you can actually just sort of walk away, but sometimes people don't walk away. If you can overlook things, it's a great way to live. Now you can't, I'm not saying you can just overlook everything, but there's a lot of small little niggling things that tick at you in your life that you could overlook. And that would actually give you, that step alone would give you great peace of mind if you could do that. Here's the second one. Second one is be careful in the corners, okay? If it's an inter-squad game, it's not like the game that really counts. Well, then don't go flying into the corners to cross-check someone in the back. These are your teammates. You want them to, you know, break their kneecap or, or twist their ankle or, or wreck their back. You don't want them to get hurt. So be careful in the corners. For me, I take that analogy to be there's areas where I know with people who I'm in partnership with, whether that's in my family, whether that's in my church family, in my community, I know we might have a disagreement. And it might be one that if we really fully explored it, it might blow up, it might be a big disagreement. I'm gonna be careful in those corners. I'm not gonna just go in there full bore to, you know, you know, Christmas is coming, by the way. Uh, I'm not gonna go in there full bore at Christmas time and just say, wow, this is blah, blah, you know, when I know that that's, uh, going to be a point of tension. Now, I say that that's what I aspire to. I don't always succeed in this, and maybe you don't always succeed in this with the best intentions, especially at Christmas. But be careful in the corners. And then here's the last one is forgive the fight. Forgive the fight. Inter-squad game, you're on the same team. Why would you fight? Uh, maybe to prove yourself. Maybe you do get annoyed. But if you do, forgive the fight because you're going to be a team. You're going to play together. You want to win the championship. You don't want disharmony on the team. So that would be my three top tips, and I think they all apply to what we're going to talk about today. Did you save that spot in the Bible? Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. And we're going to start, oh, we'll just go from verse 1. It says, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. So you've got um, the first two kids in the world. They're the first two of Adam and Eve's kids. Now, we know that they'll go on to have more kids. Uh, 
there's some logic involved in that. You know, people ask that real stumper of a question, where did Cain get his wife? Well, the answer is relative. Um, <laughs> this is before the commands that you find later in the Bible that you're really not supposed to marry your sister. So I'm just throwing that out there. If you find that gross, get over it fast because it's reality. Okay, so Adam and Eve would have had many children. They had a boy after these two named Seth that's named, but uh, we know that uh, the peoples then, they, they would have had many, many children. And, uh, and they were, that was what God had actually caused them to do is to be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth. That was one of the commands that they were given from the very beginning. But here we have two brothers. The first two brothers that ever lived uh, were having trouble here. Abel had brought an, an offering. Cain had brought an offering. And God did not look with favor on Cain's offering. And you think, is that just God being arbitrary? No, we'll learn in the verses to come that Cain knew what the right kind of offering was. Cain had that knowledge and yet chose not to do that. You'll learn that in the verses that, that we're going to come to. But I'm just telling you that in advance, just in case you think that God was just sort of haphazardly picking a favorite. No, Cain actually chose to do what was wrong. Okay? So um, I, I was preaching on this passage in Africa, and many of the uh, farmers who grew vegetables were quite concerned. <laughs> They're like, God doesn't like us. I said, no, 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 it's about giving God your best, and God would have given specific instructions, or whatever. I had to sort of really explain it in Africa. I'm not going to go into great depth here because... Uh, well, I was worried I was going to get killed, actually. So um, <laughs> here, I think you'll probably let me out the doors, I hope. Depends on what I say. Why was Cain so angry? Well, it's because he was offended. He was offended. And who was he offended at? Well, at this point, he's offended at God. He's offended at God. Abel offered an offering. He offered an offering. And God looked with disfavor on Cain's offering. He's initially angry at God. He was, he's offended at God. He wanted to get a favorable response from God for his offering, but he didn't, so he was offended. Now, how did he get offended? Well, how does anyone get offended in the first place? Well, Cain had an unreasonable expectation of God. His expectation was that God would look with favor on him even when he was disobedient. Why do we get offended? Why do you and I get offended? Well, it's because of expectations. We have unreasonable expectations. Uh, we, we, what I expect is that you'll always treat me in a positive way. You'll never treat me in a negative way. Well, if I have that expectation, I'm setting myself up to be offended because that's not reality. That's not a reasonable expectation. If I expect you to think like me or make decisions like me or vote, like me, I'm going to be offended when you don't. Has anyone ever uh, thought or said these words? Just remember if you have. I expected that from them, but not from you. <laughs> Got a groan. I love it. Um, I expected that from them, but not from you. It's because the people who can, can hurt us the, the most are usually the people closest to us, aren't they? Because we have the highest expectations of them. So the people that, a stranger on the street, he might say something nasty to me, and I'll be like, oh, that's stranger. I'm sort of mad at him, but I don't know him, and I get over it. If someone in my own family said the same thing, oh, man, that would cut deep. I expected that from them, but not from you. Expectations. Now, this isn't to say that all expectations are bad. For example, in our family, we expect that our um, children will have a bath at least once a week. And even if it comes out of the, like, garden hose, it still counts. It's just they need water on them every so often, right? But that's not an expectation that we're going to get rid of. We're going to keep it, keep it there. And one of the reasons why it's right for us to keep that expectation for our family is because we're responsible for to train them. But now if my coworkers don't bath every week, I could get offended, but that'd be unreasonable because I'm not actually in charge. Well, I am in some ways here, but I'm not really in charge of their personal hygiene. I'm not training them 
to bath and to be clean. So it's unreasonable for me to have that kind of expectation of the people around me. And so if my friends or people I work with don't bath every week, I'm really supposed to just love them. I'm not in charge of, of that part of their life. So what kind of expectations should we have of other people? Well, the closer you get to knowing someone, the more likely you are to see them acting in selfish ways that will surprise you. Uh, for example, if you really got to know me, uh, you'd find out that sometimes I can be egotistical. I can be inflated in my own self-importance. That's what egotistical means. I can be totally selfish, just looking out for my own wants. I can be so lazy and so not motivated to make anything better for anyone else but me. So I'm lazy, selfish, and arrogant, and that's just the beginning of the list. So now you won't want to get to know me, I realize that. <laughs> Good thing is, though, that the Jesus in me is the opposite of all those things. And there's a war that goes on within my life. My sinful nature, the part that makes the world all about me, wants to be in control. And yet there's been a decision made in my life to allow Jesus to be my master and for him to be in control. And, and the good news is when I'm dependent on his power in my life, the lazy, selfish, and arrogant diminishes. And the man he made me to be emerges. Of course, that man or that woman that you are made to be is like him. So that's what's going on. So, so one of the, the setups for being offended is expectations that are unrealistic in this regard. Like, so you expect people to always act proper, always to act right, or to treat you well. Well, it's a setup for being offended. I compare two things. If you have an expectation that people will treat you like royalty, say, I'm, I'm a king, or I'm, I'm a queen. I just people expect me to treat me like that. Don't they know who I am? You're going to be offended. On the flip side, if you had a, a different expectation, if you said, actually, I sort of see myself as a servant. There's a calling on my life to do certain things in response to God, to be obedient to him. And some people will, might not like me when I do those things. And uh, they might be disappointed in me, uh, whether I'm obedient or even when I'm disobedient to God. But when people get close to other people, they begin to see the flaws that are in them and the, and the brokenness that is there. And so it's good to have a right expectation. So I, I think the expectation of being a servant is, is really helpful. Uh, a servant gives their best. When someone criticizes it, they continue to serve. When they're unnoticed and unthanked, they just do what they do. They continue to serve. And I think that that's the kind of attitude that as Christians, followers of Jesus, that we're called to have, the attitude of a servant. Serving Jesus first, and no matter what criticism comes, uh, to continue in that way. Not expecting thanks, not expecting recognition, maybe even expecting somewhat to be misunderstood, but that we'll continue to serve. Let's keep going in our story. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? This is where we catch on that Cain did what was wrong. He, dis he disobeyed God. So obviously he knew what was right, what kind of offering was right to give to God, but he'd chosen not to do it. Uh, but if you do... If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? So there's that rhetorical question. Obviously, that's true. If you do what is right, God will accept what you do. Then it goes on to say this. If you do not do what is right, now this is like the kind of line that you would read to your kids at night if you wanted to scare them with a bedtime story. So get ready for this, okay? If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. No. Okay. <laughs> it's one of the creepiest lines in the Bible to me, but it's talking about the reality of our lives. Sin is crouching. This is God speaking. Sin, and he's explaining the, the, the reality that we live in, the spiritual reality we live in. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. See, God is being incredibly merciful in this moment. He's giving Cain the opportunity to escape from sin's power over him. Right now, his anger at God is opening the door to other negative things in his life. 
Um, I, had, I come from a family of seven kids. There was a girl in there, but the rest were boys. And uh, the, I was third, so two older brothers. And when I would annoy my older brothers, then I was in trouble because they were bigger than me. And I remember vividly when my brothers would get mad enough to chase me that I could run, we had a base, uh, um, a bedroom, no, no, a bathroom, sorry, a bathroom on the main floor, and I would run down the hall through the kitchen to get to this bathroom, and it had a, lo a lock on the door, that's what I was thinking about, I'd be safe in the bathroom. And I'd run around, and if I could, the door was fidget, like sort of finicky how to get it shut, and so you'd try to do it, and it was sort of two parts to get it locked. And I'd always think, as long as, long as I get this door locked, I'm safe. And I remember, probably happened a few times, but I remember at least one vivid time where I was getting the door closed and then all I saw was this foot right in this, stopping the door from closing. I mean, like, who's afraid of a foot? Well, I was terrified because I was smart. I knew that if the foot was in the door and it was my older brother's foot, then it wouldn't be long for the door, which I was holding with all my might, would be pried open and that foothold would lead to a headlock inside the bathroom. And then I was done for. Now, spiritually, this is also true. Sometimes we say, what's the big idea? A little bit of unforgiveness in my life. A little bit of offense. A little bit of something I won't let go of with somebody else. What's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal is, is, that, is that the foothold in our life leads to a stronghold over us. Always, always. See, this is the deceptive thing about sin is we think we are in charge of it. But when we allow sin's power to rule and reign in our lives, when we give, when we give access into our lives for sin in that, no, no, we're not the ones in charge, we're the ones who are under control. Listen again to, to the God's warning. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. It's interesting because we often say, well, I have some sin in my life. And that's true. But even scarier is to think that sin actually can have you. Can have you so under its sway that you, uh, it becomes something that's so hard to break out of. If offense gets a foothold in your life and you don't forgive, it'll lead to a stronghold. Because you can't control it. You, here's the thing about being offended. You cannot stop it from spreading. I'm mad at one person. I got that under control. I'm only mad at one person. Someone comes along, how come you're mad at that one person? Because of what they did to me. You know, you should really forgive. I'm mad at two people, and I got it under control. Oh, it just doubled like that. Here's the other creepy way it, it spreads, is that somebody um, comes to you and you say, I'm mad at this person. Now, this person's not going to confront me and say, you should really forgive, which is actually the right thing. They're going to say the opposite. They say, you have every right to be offended at them. If I were you, I'd never forgive them. And guess what? They walk away from the conversation with you, and they carry the sickness with them. Because they've taken on a second-hand offense. You know what's really, this is, I think this is just tragic. This happens often uh, in families, right? It's like somebody vents, right? So I, let's, say I, let's say I go home and I vent to my wife and I say, someone treated me bad. I'm so mad. Now I'm sad. Whatever. You know, I so say whatever I say. And then she's like, someone treated my wonderful, amazing husband poorly. Oh, and she has hard feelings now towards them. But I got it off my chest. I vented it and I just go, oh, yeah, I'm good. And I walk on. But she doesn't walk on. She sees that person. It's hard to talk to them, hard to be nice to them, hard to shake their hand, hard to smile in their presence, hard not to think of bad things towards them. I'm free. She's a prisoner. If you forgive someone, tell your family you forgave them. Let them out of the jail too. So let's, let's keep going. Now Cain said to his brother, now but remember he's only offended at God so far. Now it's going to change. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, remember God warned him. 
Sin is going to spread in your life. Sin is going to have you. Things are going to change. This is the moment of decision. We're going to see in a second. He disregards God's instructions. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So Cain was offended at God, but because he'd given that offense a protected place in his heart, it spread quickly and easily, and he became offended at his brother. See, bitterness spreads. It spreads. You don't control bitterness. Bitterness controls you. That's why it's so important that the scripture says to pull out, it's so important to pull out every root of bitterness. Right? Ever had a, a weed that just totally took over your garden or totally took over your lawn? And you saw that first one and you thought, hmm, I wonder what that plant is. And then later on you go, man, I wish I'd pulled that thing out by the roots. I wish I'd dug that thing out. Unless it's raspberries, because everyone loves their yard invaded by raspberries. But other bad plants. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother, oh, by the way, is he his brother's keeper? Yeah, he is. Are we? Yeah, we are. As Christians? Yeah. That's what this was about this morning. That's why Laura said, will you pray for these ones? Why? Because we're our brother's keeper. Well, one brother and two sisters, right? We're their keepers. Cain didn't know that, didn't get that, didn't understand that. He was given a brother as a great treasure, as a great, wonderful thing to have in his life. But he missed the importance of that. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Do you think God misses injustice? I don't think you would after you read that. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Now this is a literal thing that's going to happen to Cain, is he's going to, have to, he's going to move around. And, but this is also something that happens spiritually to people when they get offended. Um, we become wanderers, relationally. We become relational wanderers. We get hurt in relationships and we don't forgive and so we distance ourselves or leave that relationship. And then we have trouble trusting someone the second time around. It's harder. And because it's trouble to trust, it's, it's hard to trust. Now, it doesn't, forgiveness doesn't mean you just automatically trust. But, but if you don't work through forgiveness, you're going to have a funny thing happen to you. You're going to come into a new relationship, and suddenly they're doing something that reminds you of an old relationship, and they actually haven't done anything against you, but you, they remind you of that old person. And you've been bringing all your baggage with you into that new relationship, and suddenly you're much quicker to be offended that second time. And that leads much even quicker to the third time, and the fourth, and fifth, and sixth. Getting to the point where you have hard, it's really hard to trust, it's really hard to engage, it's really hard to connect. I, I was, before I was a pastor here at Hillcrest, um, 14 years ago, I, I lived in a smaller town, about 5,000 people, so it had less churches. And I was there eight years. And in eight years, in that church, in a smaller town, I saw people get offended in a church and switch to another church. Now, that's really crucial. Because at that point, it would be really great if that person got healed up and healthy and whole and forgave and set free of any bitterness. That, that's really crucial. But that didn't always happen. So I, I would see that. I'd sort of know these people because you see them at the post office every day in a small town, right? So I'd be like, you know, well, I'll just say Bob because I always use Bob for an illustration. So Bob goes from, leaves our church, goes to the second church, and then it isn't long before Bob leaves the second church. And I'm starting to go, oh, oh, no, 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 Bob. It's not good if you're unhealthy. It's not good if you don't get healed up. It's not good if you don't forgive. And then Bob's in a third church. And then a little while longer, I hear that Bob's gone to a fourth church. And I'm like, no, Bob, no, Bob. And then he goes to the fifth church. And I'm like, oh, no, Bob, there's not very many churches in this town. And then he comes back to our church. 
But Bob isn't the same anymore. He's not the same anymore. Because bitterness has spread. It's not just one plant, it's many plants. It's not just one person, it's many persons. And now it's become really hard for anyone to come alongside of Bob and help him. Because anyone who comes alongside and says, Bob, can we talk about how angry you've become? Can we talk about the bitterness inside of you? Can we talk about all the negative thinking? Can we talk about those things? It's like, no, no, nobody can talk about those things. Because I have every right to be offended. And people hold on to that like it's precious and it's a treasure. And they're like, I, I want to nurse this grudge and I want to hold on to this thing. And you're like, oh, no, 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 Bob. God's got so much more for you. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Now it's interesting he adds that at the end. Whoever finds me will, ki- will kill me. Because the longer you nurse grudges in your life and the more, you feel, the more you're going to feel like everybody's out to get you. And they call it a persecution complex. Another way of saying it is, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I'm going to the garden to eat worms. You just have this sense that human beings aren't that good. They're just not that trustworthy. And because of what you've experienced and because forgiveness hasn't entered the picture to set you free, it's colored how you see the people around you. Here's Cain. He's just mercilessly murdered his brother. What's he thinking about? People are going to kill me. This isn't, there's not remorse. There isn't repentance. There's fear about him becoming a victim. Because bitterness, will, it'll cloud your perception so that you don't see your own faults, but your imagination is full of the offensive things that others are probably planning to do to you right now. But the Lord said to him, this is verse 15, not so, if anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so no one would find him, would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The end of the story, the ultimate, the ultimate end of the story is that Cain went out from the Lord's presence. I want to take you back just to the mo- what I think is the most powerful verse in the whole section, and I did take some time with it. I'll just take you back. It's the second uh, sentence in verse 7. Okay, just... Pull you back there for a second and read it to you again. If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. So God is warning Cain. God's warning to Cain is, is leaving him with a choice. He mercifully tells him, you're about to go through a spiritual battle. Sin wants to master you or have you. But you've got to master sin, or you've got to win this fight against this temptation to, to live in unforgiveness. Winning the battle against offense and unforgiveness is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle. Now, forgiveness is something that, you know, you don't have to be a Christian to operate in forgiveness. But I'm going to put a caveat on that, okay? So I'll come back to that in a second. So if you're not a Christian, my advice to you would be, You'll live a healthier life if you walk in forgiveness, if you make that your habit to forgive people. And so that'd be my advice. Now, for Christians, it's a different game because Christians are not just advised that it would be healthy for you to forgive. Christians are commanded that if you are going to follow Jesus, you're required to forgive. Do you see the difference? Optional, not, not following Jesus, haven't made up your mind about that, that's sort of maybe sitting on the fence or not sure about that. Well, then you're not really following anyone. It's just you and you're, you know, you're the captain of your own destiny, so you're just making a decision. 
I don't know, should I do this forgiveness thing or not? And who should I forgive and who should I not? Christians, it's not, that's not how it works. We forgive others as God has forgiven us. And it's actually commanded. And there's actually no exceptions. That's actually quite radically different. Now, so that's why you, you might find uh, non-Christians and Christians doing the same thing. You know, they're offended and they might both forgive. Here's the thing about in the Christian world, how it's a little bit, how it's a little bit different. First, again, we're, we're commanded to, and it's every sin, but we're empowered to forgive. We're empowered to forgive. I want to tell you two things that empower you. One is the fact of Christ's forgiveness for us, right? So there's the cross on which Jesus died to take our sins upon himself, People who mocked him, ridiculed him, mistreated him, and who caused his death by their, their own actions, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So that's pretty high level of forgiveness, to forgive the people who are actually killing you in the moment. We see that, if you, we've been reading through the book of Acts this fall, you see that pattern exemplified again and again. You see, Stephen, when he's being stoned to death, he's the first Christian martyr, he says, Lord, don't hold this against their account. Forgive them. The martyrs throughout the history, actually, my, I remember my cousin Alan telling me this story. He had read through all these stories about Christian martyrs throughout the years, and he said there was a story about this one guy who, when he was, I think this was back in the burning at the stake era, and he was up there and they were starting the flames and some of the people who had been part of accusing him had pangs of conscience in that moment and they cried out and they said, please forgive us. He's about to die. And the guy doesn't forgive them. And my, my cousin Alan tells me this story. He says, the, the church leaders at that time thought they couldn't include his story in the legacy of Christians because he wasn't following Christ at the end. So hardcore they were about forgiveness. He didn't forgive at the last moment. I mean, that might blow your mind. It sort of blows mine. It's not an option for Christians. I'm not saying that guy went to hell or anything like that. I'm not saying those things. What I'm saying is it's, it's part and parcel of following Jesus Christ. But it's a battle. And so let's look at some verses that help us with the battle. John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. So there's two sides in this battle that have very different plans for your life and for mine. Right? One side is to steal from you, kill you, and destroy everything good in your life. Pretty nasty plan. And the other is to give you life and, and a full life, an abundant life all that you're meant to experience in life, all that God's got for you. So those are the two sides of the battle and their, and their game plan. Ephesians 6 and verse 10 says this, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. This is gonna help you to forgive. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I'm gonna stop there for a second. This is really helpful whether it's family fight or, you know, arguing about the election uh, or disunity in church or um, struggling with somebody in your workplace. It doesn't matter. This, is, this principle is really helpful. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Once you take your crosshairs of your gun, I mean, maybe not literally, hopefully not literally, and you put it on another human being, you are losing the spiritual battle because your spiritual battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other people. But let's read the rest of it. It's against rulers and authorities against the powers of this dark world. So we're talking about spiritual things against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So when I have a conflict with somebody else, my natural tendency is to make them the enemy. Their natural tendency will be to make me the enemy. What we got to understand is that we're part of this. This is a spiritual battle that's going on, and there are spiritual forces that want to separate us, want to divide us, want animosity between us. 
And the way to win the battle is to kick that out. To stand against that spiritual force and actually forgive. When people are at odds with each other and they forgive, that's winning the spiritual battle. That's how we win the spiritual battle. And God gives us that, the weapon of forgiveness in order to do that. 2 Corinthians 2.10, if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Listen to this. I've forgiven in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So Christians in the early church, they understood this, that the the spiritual forces against them were going to divide and conquer. And they said, we're not dumb. We know that's the strategy against us. And so, in order not to be outwitted, we stand against that. Instead of dividing, we'll unite. Instead of being bitter, we'll forgive. I mean, this is just plain and simply one of the most important reasons why we forgive, so that we won't be outwitted. So that spiritual forces of evil won't gain the upper hand. I mean, it's got to be one of their best weapons against us as Christians. When you're offended, it hinders your prayers. It hinders your worship. It wastes your time. It saps your energy. It steals your sleep. It robs your potential. In short, if we're in a spiritual battle, nothing gives the enemy a breather more than when we turn our guns on each other. Unfortunately, we have God's word, which teaches us the way to overcome the cheap shots of the enemy, and that's through the path of forgiveness. Colossians 3.12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have, you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, forgiving like God does sounds good, but what if I can't? Say, I don't have love like he does. I'm too weak or too broken to love and forgive. What if I can't? And this is really crucial to get to the what if you can't. And this is where I say that, you know, Christians sort of have a leg up in this way, not in a prideful way. The leg up that Christians have is they realize they can't. That might sound counterintuitive. The advantage that Christians have is they have discovered their own sinfulness in full technicolor. Once you get that, once you get how impossible it is for you to live like Jesus without his power, you're in a good place. Well, you're not there yet, but you're, you're in the right road. If you have some sort of thinking like, you know what, I don't really need to follow Jesus. I don't really need his power. I'll just emulate him exactly. That'll work for maybe some smaller offenses. I'm just going to overlook that guy. Cut me off in traffic. No big deal. No big deal. Oh, firebomb my house. I'll just overlook that. Oh, killed my family. Okay, it's not working. At a certain point, it, it doesn't work. At a certain point, you come to that point and say, I can't forgive. What they did against me was so horrendous, so awful, that I just can't forgive. I want to tell you, I've prayed to God many times those very words, God, you know I can't forgive. And the first sort of go around when I was really, probably in my young 20s, when I was sort of learning to forgive sort of for the first time, like really forgive at a deeper level, uh, those were fresh new prayers. I was like, this is scary. God, I can't forgive. I am so mad. I'm so full of rage. I can't sit down. All I can think about is what I would say to that person if they were in the room and how I would let them know this and that and the other thing and how I'll let everyone else know what they did to me. And then it dawned on me in this shattering revelation, I don't know if this anger is going away. God, I can't forgive. Now, here's the great thing about it. As a Christian, once you get to that point, you're in a really great place because you know you need the power of God. And that's when you say, God, I can't forgive, 
But Jesus in you can. Jesus in you can do the transformation deep within your heart that allows you to forgive. So in my first real, you know, I never had an enemy until my early 20s. Oh, a few bullies at school, a few guys I worked with were jerks and stuff like that, but never an enemy. Never a real enemy. But in my early 20s, I actually encountered uh, a few relationships. One person in particular just flat out said, I'm basically here to ruin your life. And I was like, what? That's not nice. Why can't we be friends? Why can't we? Anyhow, you know, I just like, why can't we be friends? I do, what the? Anyhow, it didn't go that way. It didn't go that way. Once you have an enemy, it's incredible because all these scriptures open up to you. Jesus talked about loving your enemies. Suddenly you're like, oh, I didn't really want to have to apply those verses or to follow through, but now, now I get to. God, I can't forgive. Let me read you a verse to encourage you. Romans 5, 5, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So you say, I'm going to go on this journey from, and this is how it starts. It starts with an act of the will. I choose, even if my feelings say I can't, I choose to forgive. And way down at the end of the journey is this place, it's a long ways over here, where you come to praying prayers of blessing and wanting good for that person and loving them. This is... You know, it looks like 10 feet. It's, it's a 1,000 miles, <laughs> okay? The way you get from here to here is all by the power of God. It's all by the love of God. It's all by him pouring it into us. As the scripture says, God has poured out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's how it happens. So say, God, I can't forgive, but I know you can forgive. You forgave on the cross the people who are killing you. So you have the power to do it, even though I don't. But you are in me. You put your Holy Spirit in me. That's what happens when you become a follower of Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell in you. And, and then some crazy things happen. You start getting really sensitive about sin in your life and dealing with that. You sense more of God's guidance in your life and what you should do. And there's an empowerment to do the things Jesus calls us to do. So you say, it seems like I'm not able to forgive. It seems like sin has me. It seems like sin is my master. It seems like I'm under a power I can't get out from, but you are my master, according to the scripture, and your power is present to work in me so that this miracle, because I can only count it as a miracle if I could ever get to the end of that, can happen because of you. And so we begin by an act of agreeing with God. We say, God, this journey is one I can't take on my own. I need your power. I'm going to make a choice of the will in agreement with what you can do in your power, and I'm going to choose to forgive. So we make that choice. Say, Lord, I forgive that person. And forgiving is a big deal. It means you give up your right to revenge. And revenge is done in a million different ways. I mean, you can just get back at them the same way they got it back at you, but there's all sorts of other tricky ways to get back at them. And then there's just like, just tell everyone your story, how much they hurt you. Tell lots of people so the whole community knows. So everyone at the workplace knows what they did. So you're telling me I have to give that up, Lord? You're not even leaving me one weapon to fight with? You want me to completely trust you? Wow. This has got to be a miracle. So I can't forgive, but you can forgive because you did forgive and you forgave me and you're calling me to forgive like you forgave me. In the power of that, in the logic of that, here's the thing. A lot of people say, it's so unjust what happened to me. Yeah, it is unjust. If it wasn't unjust, there'd be nothing to forgive. What I find is people either make it bigger or smaller. They say, it's so unjust, I can't forgive. And I'll say, okay, but let's just look at what our sins caused Jesus. 
He was purely sinless. None of us are. We're not totally innocent in every regard. He was absolutely innocent, took all the sins of the world upon himself, took the shame and the blame on himself. Here's the other end of the spectrum. People say, they're so hurt, they're so mad, they're so angry, and then they say, oh, but it's no big deal. And you're like, no, no, you're sick. You're not doing well. It is a big deal. You were sinned against. And there's a remedy for sin, and it's forgiveness. So, Lord, I give up all my desires to gain revenge. I'm going to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Ravi Zachariah says the cross was the only place where sin was thrown and it didn't bounce back. Instead, Jesus absorbed it on our behalf. He absorbed your sin and my sin. And because of that, we can have a relationship with God. Also because of that, we can walk in his footsteps and forgive. That God's called every one of us to be little sin absorbers. Not to make people right with God, not, not, they don't get salvation in relationship with us, but when sin is thrown at us, we respond with forgiveness. The sin doesn't bounce back. God sent his Holy Spirit into the hearts of his followers to be salt and light in the world, and part of that is we stop the endless cycle of repercussions and revenge. Imagine if every Christian in Moose Jaw was a sin sponge, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it. So a dog bites a kid, a kid yells at mom, mom yells at dad, dad goes to work, yells at his coworker, and then they go yell at the Christian who takes it and doesn't respond and it doesn't go any further. Well, he's called us to it. He's commanded it. He's empowered us to be like him. Stand with me this morning. We're going we're gonna to close.